Hello, Scott here. Since making this show a full-time endeavor, the greatest supporters have been you, the listener. As summer moves into fall, the podcast is about to reach a new milestone, six years on the air. And there have been a lot of changes behind the scenes, which recently led me to ask, rather publicly, whether or not the show should continue. The reasons for that question are many, and include that personally, I've recently moved into a new space, and I'm spending more time commuting to spend every available evening and weekend with my children, which leaves me really only with the days to continue producing this podcast. Professionally, there are invitations to cover larger events on ever more interesting topics, including an upcoming Movement of Movements meeting in November, as well as working with others to help them bring their dreams of podcasting about permaculture on air, as you'll hear in the following episode, and upcoming releases with Benjamin Weiss, and... I've been working with Kendra Huffman to create a team working behind the scenes to continue to grow and increase the quality of the offerings from the show. This latter part includes a business manager, a graphics designer, a writer, a curator, and a sound engineer. Doing all of that comes with greater outlays as we increase the offerings, even as we all do our best to work in the gift. So until September 30th, 2016, I'm holding a listener-specific fundraiser. Between now and then, I'd like to raise $4,500 and I'm happy to report that as I put this show together, we're already 10% of the way there. Can we exceed this goal in the days remaining? We've done some amazing things so far, so I think we will. If you're in a place to give to this work, you can send something via PayPal to show at thepermaculturepodcast.com or by using the paypal.me link in the show notes. You can also drop something in the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. I'll keep you up to date in future episodes about these efforts. Now then, on to episode 1631, Protopian Learning and Leadership. This is the Permaculture Podcast, and I'm Scott Mann. Today's episode sees David Bilbrey return to sit in the host's seat in an interview that he recorded as a follow-up to my earlier conversation with Joshua Cubista. Today, David and Joshua explore further what it means to seek out a right livelihood while creating a truly sustainable world, something that acts as a transition between the consumptive space that we find ourselves in now that is depleting our resources faster than the world can naturally create them, moving towards a space where we live within the boundaries of Earth. Along the way, they also touch on the influence of someone who I think we could probably all do with reading a bit more of, the work of Buckminster Fuller. With that, I'll leave you to Joshua and David and join you again afterwards. This is David Bilbrey with Ecothinkit.com, and I'm guest hosting on Scott Mann's The Permaculture Podcast. Today I have Joshua Cubista on the line. Joshua is a global experiential designer, facilitator, and strategist focused on creating sustainable, regenerative, and thriving futures through uh, personal, social, and systemic leadership capacity building. He's the author of Prototyping Our Future, Social Labs for a Sustainable, Regenerative, and Thriving Future, and founder at Evolution Lab. Welcome, Joshua. Thank you, David. It's great to be with you. I really enjoyed your interview with Scott 
So I wanted to delve deeper into some of the topics that were introduced there and just go wherever the conversation goes. But um, before we get too into that, I just wanted to see if you wanted to add anything else to uh, the introduction about your, yourself and your work. Maybe I'll just say that I'm, I'm eager to uh, explore more with you, David. I think there's such a rich sort of fertile tapestry of uh, things going on in the world around personal, social, and systemic leadership capacity building, permaculture, education, and sort of the horizons of leadership and learning. So, you know, I think uh, as part of my background, maybe it would be useful to just share that um, for me, my background really starts way at the beginning of my life in that I grew up in the context of large-scale human potential trainings that came out of the 70s and 80s in the U.S. and then have gone all around the world and partnered that with sustainable community development and organizational change, both strategic innovation and uh, relational innovation in context of how do we actually move towards sustainability um, and regeneration and thriving in our personal lives, our organizations, and our communities. So, you know, I'm happy to happy to go wherever it would best serve um, in this conversation. So, when I got introduced to permaculture in 2011, I very quickly got interested in, uh, I mean, I love the idea of food forests and growing food, but I was really interested in the application of permaculture and whole systems thinking to economic and social systems. And so when I heard that you're teaching a class uh, uh, permaculture for systemic change, I was really excited because that's the first time I've heard of someone teaching a, a permaculture class specifically focused that way. Can you tell me a little bit more about, a little bit more about how that came about and, uh, and what you guys cover in that course? Sure, absolutely. So that's a course that I designed and teach at Prescott College in Arizona. And um, the purpose of that course is really to uh, engage and explore with students through experiential learning and open source inquiry, permaculture design, collaborative leadership, and strategic sustainability and evolution. And those are you know pretty big uh, buzzy words, but really at the heart of it, I think what it's about is how can we as learners and leaders develop our capacities as uh, designers, facilitators, what I like to call maverick artists, change leaders, um, and really conductors of meaningful change. And so in that course at Prescott College, it's a month-long what they call block courses. And so it's a month-long intensive, which is an equal credit uh, bachelor's course. And we have a month to explore the roots of permaculture, Permaculture is a design science, um, looking at what does it mean to intentionally create systems that lead towards sustainability and particularly systemic sustainability, so taking a whole uh, holistic perspective in regard to exploring what that means. And then in this last uh, year, what we did uh, was we used a 60-acre ranch called Juniper Well Ranch uh, in Skull Valley, Arizona as our design challenge site and the students had an opportunity to uh, apply all that they were learning within the context of this really beautiful ranch um, out there and uh, explore what it might mean to transition that space towards a social benefit or community benefit healing and education center. And so it was an amazing opportunity to get really practical with some of these uh, bigger ideas. And then also, you know, the we, I take the course on a um, seven-day field trip across Arizona 
uh, learning journey to places like Arco Santi and uh, down to Patagonia, Arizona, where there's a variety of amazing demonstration sites for learning both applied permaculture and then different elements that you might say would fit into the permaculture flower. Um, for example, Kate Tyrion's work at Deep Dirt Farm Institute uh, in Patagonia. So, you know, really the whole entirety of the course not only creates opportunities to practice and employ sort of collaborative, rapid prototyping, sort of social lab style learning approaches, but it also invites the possibility to practice collaborative leadership as we begin to understand both the complex challenges and the opportunities that we face in our world held within the times that we live in. I'd like to come take the course. It sounds awesome. So the one, one word I'd like to bring up and, and talk about a little bit is sustainability. So that is a, a loaded word. So for start, give me kind of your definition of sustainability and then what that means as far as um, s- systemic sustainability. You know, it's interesting because I think as sustainability has become more and more common in popular culture, the definition itself has really been diluted to the point where, you know, there's... Um, one could hear the word sustainability in so many different contexts that it almost loses its meaning. And so for me personally, uh, there's a couple of different takes on sustainability that I personally include in my own sort of way of thinking about it. Uh, one of them comes from the work of Carl Hendrik Robert, who's a doctor from Sweden, who about 30 years ago created um, a framework for strategic sustainable development within which they identified uh, four different sustainability principles that allow people to sort of hone in on understanding what sustainability means within the context of the biosphere within which we live and how uh, sustainability principles can be a way of framing our understanding about the biological processes and social processes that we're a part of that allow us to put into context scientifically articulated principles that in a sense, the essence of would be uh, that if we're going to design sustainable systems, they have to both work for ecology, work for people, and create a context within which we can innovate and co-create that actually does lead towards sustainable futures. So that's one sort of area in terms of the framework for strategic sustainable development and their international organization uh, that has really proliferated these principles and methods that come out of that school of thought is called the natural step. And so they have great work around the world. And then another perspective that is equally meaningful and important to me in regard to understanding sustainability comes from the work of Michael Benelli and the Sustainability Laboratory uh, out of New York City, although they have projects around the world. And similarly, Michael Benelli was looking at the level of complexity uh, that our society is and understanding that within the scope of uh, our relationship to the natural world and within society, that um, if we look at the laws of thermodynamics, for example, we can actually distill elements of the natural processes 
of living in the biosphere in a way that, again, would allow to hone in on a set of principles. And so Michael Benelli and the work of the lab, Sustainability Laboratory, uh, have a different set of five core sustainability principles. And what they're really focused on is this idea of a, a holistic perspective that really is integrative of all of the facets of human endeavor, I would say, in a way that allows people to fundamentally uh, engage in meaningful uh, shared action and co-creation through the understanding of what would actually require sustainability. And so in the terms of uh, that approach, really sustainability is a system state. And so if sustainability is a system state that within a system can uh, balance the variables that allow for uh, a system to continue onward, then we would be able to actually employ different kinds of frameworks or different kinds of tools or methods within which uh, we would be able to lead towards a sustainable future. So those are a couple of different elements that you know have been meaningful in terms of my own journey with sustainability. However, I would really say that I think when we look at the uh, global, accelerating, complex, systemic challenges that we're f facing in the world and the reality that in many cases we're facing exponential change that's both challenging and within which holds opportunities. The idea of sustainability, um, I think, is key in terms of an aim within which we need as a society to uh, be able to reach in order to uh, make it through the sort of the bottleneck of decreasing resources and increasing needs and wants and uh, desires around the world. However, at the same time, some of the you know core questions that I'm sitting with right now are what would it mean to actually be able to create sustainable, regenerative, and thriving futures that really expand our sense of what it would mean to be humans on the planet in a way that we were able to live towards both our highest potential and our deepest aspirations. And I think some of the elements that I would include in that would be things like uh, evolving on purpose or strategic evolution and looking at a longer view of time. Um, so asking questions like, what's your 500-year vision? Or exploring themes like exponential collaboration and what might that mean in the 21st century and beyond. So I think... To, to circle back to your question, sustainability for me is uh, an important key element of this overall conversation uh, that's happening in the world around how do we navigate and direct the times in which we live. But also, I think there's many other interrelated elements that are very important to keep uh, on the table uh, to explore. And I think, in fact, the permaculture movement is is one of the spaces in which we've really been able to expand and explore what it means to be holistic and integrative in a variety of different ways. I was, you know, when you mentioned uh, planning with a 500-year um, future in mind, well, what a different world we would have. <laughs> How differently would things be governed if, if the, the United States government was thinking about a 500-year plan? <laughs> I, I love it. Well, and it's fun, you know, it's actually, I think one of the things that often comes up for me about these kinds of explorations is really, you know, it can sound kind of aspirational or even 
you know, far-fetched in some senses to explore things like a 500-year vision or others. But when it really comes down to it, I think it's very pragmatic and timely that we as a human society need to be asking uh, really big, meaningful questions in order to uh, really get to the root causes of the world that we're creating. And I would, I would even emphasize the systemic root causes of what it is that we've been creating in order to be able to imagine a future that not only works for us as individuals, but then also, you know, on the social and systemic level as well in regard to co-creating desirable futures. Like what a fun thing, like what a fun thing to explore and engage in, you know? So, so what are some of those systemic root problems in your view? Well, you know, I think the thing is, is that, you know, whether we look at a variety of different levels of scale, maybe would be an appropriate way to say it, or levels of resolution, there are many different human systems that we have built, whether it's a context of educational systems or economic systems or variety of ecological systems, like the way we use energy or the way we use water or produce food. Those are all uh, areas in which the way in which humanity is creating and relating to those different systemic attributes of our society are absolutely creating a variety of different ripple effects and impacts across the whole world. And so one of the interesting things is that as the world continues to get more global and complex and the rates of change increase and we're seeing different dynamics um, on all of these different, in all of these different areas, the thing is, is that it may be that our greatest challenges end up being the inspiration to uh, create innovations across different levels of scale uh, in a way that uh, creates a more abundant future than we've ever known. And so it may be that systemic root causes that, of course, I would say really begin within us as individuals, translate into shared endeavor together, and then also are then mirrored in the systems we create. There's a leverage point there within all of those different areas that allow us to actually take meaningful action in creating systems that really do work for the whole. And so I think one of the uh, challenges that we're facing includes the fact that many of our systems were built for the world of yesterday rather than the world of tomorrow. And so if we're going to navigate the ambiguity and uncertainty of the times ahead, I think it's going to be very important for us to be able to become sort of fluent and flexible in how we interact and relate to, of course, ourselves, each other, and our larger systems, and recognize that the systems that we create, it's this really interesting feedback loop where the systems we create uh, are also part of what fosters the worldviews and the beliefs that we hold, and inversely, the beliefs we hold uh, translate into the nature of the systems that we create. And so, if we're going to uh, transition our systems to more sustainable, regenerative, and thriving futures, then we're really going to need to practice and, and model different ways of being together that would allow that to happen. You know, what's exciting is, uh, I told you, I, you know, I just discovered permaculture in 2011, but um, have discovered in the last several years that there's people that have been doing 
and experiments and studying and developing ideas around social, economic, and agricultural systems for decades. <laughs> I just didn't know about them. And um, one, one of the things that is just keeps emerging is, you know, we're talking about a transformation of society and culture, but it always comes back to us as individuals. And uh, there was a quote that I heard from Michael Benelli said, the creation of order by deliberate design is a quality that is latent in being human. We are all designers. So part of this is uh, we need to form new ideas and figure out how to transform the world. But part of it is just reconnecting to who we are as human beings and who we are as a, as a, a group of people that are on, on the same team on planet Earth. And uh, so can you talk about how you've seen some integrations of, of those aspects into other people's lives? Well, you know, maybe this is a valuable example just to share uh, within that context, which is, you know, one of the grandfathers, I guess, of, of the modern design movement uh, would be, in my mind, Buckminster Fuller. And, um, and actually, in fact, Michael Benelli and Fuller were close collaborators for many, many years. And so one of the things that's interesting about Buckminster Fuller's life is that he uh, decided to live with a personal mission that was to make the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation without ecological offense or the disadvantage of anyone. And so, you know, part of his life story was that he decided to see what one man can do and uh, to live in a way, or at least explore what it would mean, experiment in a way with his own life that would explore how can we translate, how could he translate meaningful action in that kind of a personal mission and intention. And I think in terms of, for example, his work or people like Bella Benathi or many, many others, as you say, through the generations really, who've been a part of creating meaningful change in the world, have laid the foundations for us to be able to ask these big questions of, of what does it mean to be human in the 21st century and how do we intentionally design a present and a future uh, that can live up to our own aspirations and that we can, in a way, uh, learn how to um, move towards our highest potentials. And so I think there's an aspect of what we're getting at here where even when we look in sort of the mirror of um, our world today, I think that there's a big impulse that is a part of uh, the emerging future that's asking of us to uh, engage meaningfully with our own uh, experiences and uh, intentions and the purpose uh, or the purposes with which uh, we feel called to uh, have shared work and shared play in the world and find ways to really move forward um, that reflect something that that is is finding our own sense of what's most meaningful and translate that in, into shared action. So there's really a lot of different uh, amazing examples of where those kinds of communities or uh, organizations or individuals are doing that work in the world. And as you say, you know, I think we're all uh, standing on the shoulders of people who have come before us in a way that really allows us to find a sense of uh, confidence in our own innate resourcefulness to be able to rise to this occasion, which I think is both uh, humbling and very hopeful. 
It is, absolutely. Um, I'd like to go back to that Buckminster Fuller quote real quick. Can you say that again? Sure. It's um, So his mission was uh, to make the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation without ecological offense or the disadvantage of anyone. So what year did he publish that? You know, that's a good question. I, I, I at least in the 60s, I mean, but I mean, just a, yeah, the 60s, yeah. He, I mean, or the 50s. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, at least 50 years ago. And so the thing is, is that he was so prolific in his writings and his work. I don't personally know a specific date, but it's just there's so much that uh, he explored uh, that, you know, is, is just so valuable in terms of the complexities we're facing today. If there was one book to get an introduction to Buckminster Fuller, what would you recommend? You know, I think the thing is, is that Fuller's work is very dynamic. And so there's a lot of different resources that are out there to be able to explore who he was and what his work was about. I think for me, one of the things I've really enjoyed is simply looking at different YouTube videos of the talks that he gave. And it, and one of the things I like about that is you get to see a little bit of who he was and, and uh, how he was, which is just super fun. And uh, I don't know, incidentally, you know, I have uh, a fun sort of anecdotal story about Buckminster Fuller, which is that when I was a baby and as I was growing up, my parents were really good friends with uh, the folk singer John Denver. And John Denver was really great friends with uh, Buckminster Fuller. And so back in the 70s and 80s, uh, John Denver had this um, foundation called the Windstar Foundation. And they would put on large-scale conferences that were really about how do we create environmental and social sustainability. They didn't quite call it that necessarily at the time. Um, but choices for a healthy future, I think one of them was called. And so Buckminster Fuller and other kinds of people of the day would gather and explore some of these themes. And so given that I was able to, lucky enough, grow up in in some of those contexts, uh, one time my mom was uh, flying with me. We used to live in Japan when I was growing up, and she was flying somewhere within the States back. So it was a long flight, basically. And... um, so me being a really youngster, probably, you know, around three, four kind of thing, maybe even younger than that, there was this guy sitting behind us in the airplane. So, you know, as people generously do on long flights, you know, this man was like, hey, you know, kind of saying hi to me and whatever. And so I jumped over the seat and kind of hung out with him for a while. And then uh, my mom was like, wow, I really, I think I know who that is, but she couldn't think of placed it. And so then... You know, I went back with her and whatever, and the, the plane landed, and somebody nearby said that the person who she was trying to think the name of was Buckminster Fuller. And so my, my, my mom ran out to the car that he was getting into, and she just looked at him, and she was like, I just want you to know, you know, that I, I love your work, and it's just, you know, she was just sort of having one of those moments of connecting in a meaningful way with him. And he looked at her, and he goes, well, I love you. And, you know, that was the end of the conversation. It wasn't until decades, you know, later or sometime later that at one of these big events in Aspen with uh, the Windstar Foundation that my mom ended up meeting one of his uh, close co-workers and she told the story to the co-worker and it was in the moment where my mom looked at the co-worker and said, and then Bucky, because his name, often people call him Bucky, who knew him, 
then Bucky said, I love you. And it was one of those moments where across time, sort of this meaning was translated to that person. And it just, you know, was a really heart opening and surprised moment across time. So, you know, I don't know what any of that means, but it's, it's uh, definitely, you know, a part of the story, I suppose. Well, it's a great window into the, the nature of who he was. So I love that. That's a great story. Well, I'd love to hear some examples of some of the projects that you've worked on to create systemic change as one of the things as I was listening to uh, Scott's interview with you and like, man, but I want to hear, I want to hear more. I want to hear projects, examples. So either stuff you've been directly involved with or just projects you know about that would be relevant. Sure. So one that immediately comes to mind is um, this is uh, the work of a friend and colleague, Pavel Luksha. Uh, from Russia, and he and he and others, many others, uh, co-created something called the Global Education Futures Forum. And the purpose of the forum was really to uh, explore globally the future of education and learning. And they went around the world exploring in dialogue what the future of uh, learning was from a variety of different places. So in California and Silicon Valley, there was a, a foresight session and a global conference there that I was a part of where we were exploring what is the future not only of education but of cities and of the relation of technology and humanity. Then in Prague was another place that we met and they've been in Brazil and of course in Russia. And so the thing is, is that that whole group. One of the things that's really exciting about the exploration that's come out of that is that it's enlarging and expanding and creating a portfolio of resources that allow us to explore what might it mean to actively engage in the creation of an educational system or multiple educational systems that allow us to uh, learn and lead together in a way that really does uh, move towards desirable futures. So that would be one, but there's, an, there's a, a, a root project that's come out of that, uh, which is called Protopia Labs. And so Pavel and many, many other of the key players in Global Education Futures Forum are coming together. And what our intention is, is to explore what it would mean in practice to create a community of evolutionary learning labs that would build upon the amazing work that's going on in different institutions, different labs, different organizations and communities around the world, and then in a way uh, make that the tacit learning and wisdom that's coming out of those spaces available to everybody as shared resources so that we can actually explore then what it means to co-create systemic change. So Protopia Labs would definitely be another sort of uh, sphere that's, that's currently emerging. And then there's another organization that um, I think really does express this kind of work amazingly as well, which is the Academy for Systemic Change. The Academy, their purpose in essence is really to foster biological, social, and economic well-being. And Peter Senge and Darcy Winslow and many other people uh, through the Academy for Systemic Change are really creating both learning experiences, learning environments, and programs, and I would say systemic interventions to really explore what it means to create systemic change. And so those are 
those are some examples, but you know, I think one of the things that we're seeing that I find particularly energizing is that there's really a, a wide variety of programs and courses around the world that are in a similar way exploring these kinds of questions from different angles. And so, you know, I think, for example, the social labs, the field of social labs that's being created around the world or some are called social innovation labs sometimes as well. There's a whole host of people who are really exploring and working with complex systemic uh, root challenges and then looking at how do we actually experiment and prototype and build capacity together in order to uh, create change that really translates into lasting innovations. So those are a few places that I think are uh, exemplary. And, and again, there's many others as well. I think uh, maybe I'll just add one more. I think the um, Masters in Strategic Leadership Towards Sustainability in Sweden, which is a master's that I participated in a few years ago, is another kind of uh, exploration of developing leadership capacities that lead towards uh, systems and sustainability in a way that, from a higher education perspective, offers, again, another perspective of how we might be able to work and play together using these kinds of ideas. What kind of educational models or mediums are they are they talking about? Or are they talking about all available? I mean, you're talking about classes in elementary, high school, college, you're talking about online courses, like what kind, are they looking at creating new platforms? Or what's their thought process on that? So in a way, it, it would depend on, you know, which uh, organization or which program, you know, they all, they all do it slightly differently. And having said that, I think some of the themes across the board are how do we develop our capacity to think creatively? How do we engage in relational capacity building uh, or relational innovation, which I think for me, the way that I articulate what that means is that, you know, in the world we have an amazing amount of ingenuity and capacity for ideation or the innovation of new ideas and new things and new products and processes. And yet, by and large, you know, humanity at a global scale is pretty poor at relating and transferring those kinds of innovations uh, in a way that really is equitable, that works for the whole. And so relational innovation is really about how do we learn how to learn and lead together in a way that really works for us as individuals and a society. And so, uh, you know, thinking creatively, relational innovation, developing our ability to apply the scientific method in a way that can translate into shared inquiry, um, understanding systems, so systems thinking and um, systems being even. So how do we actually be the system we want to see in the world uh, is a great quote that I first heard from colleague Alexander Laszlo, who does amazing work in these fields as well um, at a university in Argentina, actually. And then I think also, you know, connecting with the natural world, so rewilding and uh, creating opportunities for personal and shared reflection um, are another element that uh, we're seeing more and more of. And then I would say that learning how to collaborate at scale is another area. And then 
actually the practice of leadership. So what does it mean to develop our personal leadership capacity, our collective leadership capacity, and do that in a way that not only translates into meaningful change, but that that happens in the here and now. So those are, those are a variety of different things that I, I see across the board on many different kinds of programs and uh, educational work that's around the world. And the thing that's interesting about it is that that's happening, whether it's K to 12 education or uh, it's in certain higher institutions or it's in open general public uh, training opportunities, these kinds of themes are becoming more and more common. And then where my particular interest is, is where they all come together. And I think there's been decades of work done in different streams of, you know, whether it's human potential or sustainable community development or uh, organizational change, we're seeing those kinds of spheres coming together in holistics offerings in a way that's, I think, um, both really needed and also pretty exciting. Yeah, it's it's amazing all the different things that are going on in the world that are completely of the same vein and are also completely unrelated to one another. <laughs> so there, you can see this fermentation just rising as the as the destructive systems of our, our governments and our economic systems are sort of in atrophy and, and, and some would say crumbling. At the same time, you see this ferment of life under the surface in, in most countries in the world and many different cultures. It's not one person. It's not one movement. And so it's undeniable that we're going through a change of not just times or seasons but it feels like a change of epochs really you know and so how we transition in that is really important because with change that massive it could get pretty ugly <laughs> in some of those transitions so how do we create these regenerative systems and have as much of it in place built with some of the resources of the old world so that when things change the transitions more peaceful <laughs> and less catastrophic. Yeah, well, you know, and it, it reminds me of my favorite, one of my favorite Leonard Cohen songs, the singer and poet. In one of his songs, he says, there's a crack in everything, and that's how the light comes in. And I think that that idea can be a really powerful, I guess, invitation for all of us to be able to explore what it can mean to live through complex and dynamic times and find a way to foster our beauty, grace, and style as we go about it. And that's not uh, meant in a flippant way either. I think the reality is is that, you know, it's, it's a potential that, you know, we have really uh, some dynamic times ahead. And so if that's the case, you know, one of the things that we then have the opportunity to explore is, well, what would it mean and what does it mean for humans as individuals and as a society as a whole to come together and, and learn how to relate and navigate change in a way that really we never have before and we never have had to. And I think we're basically living curious and powerful time on the planet in which we uh, have the possibility, you know, to create futures that are more abundant than we've ever known collectively um, and or to, you know, live in a way that leads towards some real destructive ways of being and continued ways of being uh, that would really threaten 
the dynamic flux of what it means to be alive on the biosphere. And so, you know, I, I feel personally that one of the ways that we can understand some of the the opportunities before us is is to, you know, kind of check in with that question in a way of of if you could do anything and you knew that you would be successful doing it, what would you really want to do in the world? And by and large, as the pace of change quickens, creating spaces to have meaningful conversations and do shared work in a way that can allow us to ask these kinds of questions uh, individually and collectively is of of great need and and can really translate into some some pretty amazing innovations as well. So another thing I wanted to know a little bit about was restoration economies. What are restoration economies? So I'm uh, currently having a really wonderful opportunity that I'm just really excited about uh, down in southern Arizona where one of my projects is. And there's a group of people here who are a variety of different ecologists and anthropologists and restoration workers who are working in the borderlands region to create a restoration leadership institute that really focuses on how do we uh, restore the ecologies of this place across the borderlands region between Arizona and Mexico. And how do we do that in a way that uh, develops our cultural uh, capacities and brings back social restoration into this region as well, all of which through creating a restoration economy. And so that is a, a continued and emerging concept that really is about how do we create right livelihood, uh, shared work in a way that not only develops the economies and um, abundance in that way of our community and our resources, but it does it in a way that brings resources back or builds resources back through the land and do that through hands-on learning and hands-on projects that build our communities as well, all of which is very different, for example, than a extraction-based economy where we're taking things out of the earth or we're taking things out or exporting them from our communities. So there's a variety of people around the world who are working on similar concepts and some of the partners here down in Arizona, whether it's Borderlands Restoration or Deep Dirt Farm or the uh, Borderlands Habitat Network, there are many people here who are exploring and actively engaging with these ideas. So there'll be lots more to come in terms of different uh, projects and opportunities to connect with the work here that's being, that has been prototyped really for, you know, 30 years in some case. So, you know, there's instances where people bringing back water to rivers that haven't flowed for 200 years and things like that from large-scale uh, restoration work, even just through hands-on projects. So it's really amazing what's happening here. And, you know, it's one of those things where, like so many places in the world, people are just getting down into the dirt and getting their hands dirty and, uh, and exploring and experimenting with what does it mean to actually do this work in a way that, uh, as Kate Tyrion says at Deep Dirt Farm, uh, that we're able to restore the land so that we can restore ourselves as well. How would you define right livelihood? Right livelihood is a Buddhist concept that really, uh, within the context of Buddhism, invites the, an opportunity for people to 
work in the world in a way that is in alignment with their own values and through taking action in the world that reflects not only who we are as individuals, but then works for the whole. And so I think, you know, that that opens up a whole other sort of realm of exploration uh, just within the context of what does it mean for us to actually have work in the world that can uh, translate into meaningful uh, action. And, and I think for me, one of the things that I find really interesting about this sort of axis is that similarly, the area of endeavor, of human endeavor, that is our work, I think connects with the area of human endeavor that is education. And one of the questions that I'm sitting with is what would it be like for us to uh, redefine what it means or one of the purposes of education and the purpose of work to actually being contribution-based. So if our work and our learning and our leadership were all united in, in this exploration of how do we contribute in the world in a way that not only works for us as individuals but for us as a society and also systemically and globally, it would really ch fundamentally change the nature of how we orient ourselves to uh, what we do. And I think, you know, whether it's from, you know, different disciplines, whether it's psychology or philosophy or many others, even economics, you know, there's, there's viable ways that we might explore that human beings on a whole are more productive and more joyful and more energized when they're focused towards things that have great meaning to them, to us. And the thing is, is that, you know, there's many different ways that we can motivate ourselves or others. And one would be that, you know, we see on the nightly news or any kind of news, you know, that's really fear-based or aversion-based and it's things we want to move away from. And that kind of motivation is very motivating. You know, it can be very catalyzing and uh, it creates particular kinds of responses. And another way to explore and engage and, and uh, inspire is through pleasure and interest or deep meaning. And, you know, those two approaches uh, are fundamentally different. And I would say that when we feel energized, engaged in things that are meaningful to us, we feel pleasure and interest things get not only a lot more fun, but they also get more generous and more kind and uh, invite possibilities for a different kind of courage to come forward. So I think those are all elements of, of uh, opportunities that we have when we look at the future before us and, and how we want to participate in creating that. I wanted to talk a little bit more about contribution-based, uh, but also I want to talk about intrinsic motivation. So I was exposed to the idea of intrinsic motivation through a book by Daniel Pink and also through a book called Flow by, I'm not going to say this name right, but Mihaly Chizinski. And I got really excited about that because it made sense. Like you're, you're intrinsically motivated, you're interested, so you're going to be better at doing that than in something you don't like. But then in the context of our, our current system, with a profit focus and profit is the first last and only goal of western capitalism it's kind of difficult to even find an environment where intrinsic motivation is possible in, in the workplace and so i think the problem is in, in a, to a degree you can't have a concept that's outside of the thought process and the the whole paradigm of a system inside of that system. So we have to create these new systems. We have to create these new communities. We have to create this reconnected humanity in order for 
much more of humanity to actually be able to work in in that way, work in intrinsic motivation. Have you seen uh, have you seen examples of people being able to do that very often? This actually links to one of the areas that I'm uh, really focusing a lot of attention and uh, shared exploration with quite a few contributors around the world right now. And it's basically connected to this idea of even within what's intrinsic to us, there's different ways that we articulate the narratives and the times through which we live. And I think that by and large, people are really used to hearing either utopian visions of the future that reflect ways of imagining what's possible that are so beautiful and so epic and so reflective of our of our hopes and dreams that they almost feel intangible or inaccessible. And uh, many myths uh, speak of different utopias that we can really learn a lot from in terms of what's important to us and, and what might be elements of scenarios that we might want to explore in terms of shared futures. However, you know, another way of, of articulating our narratives or our, or our stories either in the past or the future would be dystopian futures where we're really looking at, you know, the breakdown of uh, society or life as we know it to the point where, you know, it's either very force-based, so in terms of dictatorships and things like that, or it's even below that where it's just systems failure and crash and what does that world look like? And so, you know, when when we're looking at things like intrinsic value and you have those kinds of narratives to go on, it can be problematic because if we're searching for inaccessible futures or we're fighting against futures that nobody really wants to have, then we're sort of caught in between uh, narratives that, although, again, they may be motivating, are really challenging in asking questions of, well, what does that look like in my daily life? And so there's another way of articulating our shared narratives or understanding a different kinds of uh, orientation, which comes under the term protopia, which was originally coined by Kevin Kelly. And the thing is, what protopia really means is that it's the profound taking of action in the here and now that makes the world a better place each day and every day, and uh, one day at a time. And I think the thing is, is that the shift in story there is really about rather than searching for something in the future or moving away from something, either in the present or the past or the future, uh, it creates the opportunity for us to create a narrative that is a protopian narrative that is really about how do we make the world a better place each day and every day, which I think really connects to this idea of co being contribution-based, whether that's our work or it's our learning uh, in education or it's our leadership practices, but it's fundamentally bringing us uh, really present into this moment and saying, you know, if I could do anything, what would I do? And then going and doing that. And I think I mentioned um, Alexander Laszlo earlier, and he really sums up this idea in a really eloquent way. And he says, between the frustratingly unattainable perfection of the utopia and the frightening repulsion of the dystopia lies the creative alternative to the uninspired extrapolation of our current myopia. This is the possibility base of protopia. This is our greatest potential and our most powerful reframe. And I think that encapsulates both the 
the present conditions where people uh, are very sort of in some in some cases almost you know caught in the headlights of the pace of change and challenge and opportunities that we're facing and then looking for alternatives and in pop culture it by and large is either utopian or dystopian and so then there's this whole other way of approaching what contribution means what learning means what leadership means uh, through the lens of protopia you know that's one of the things i love about the permaculture movement and the transition town movement is that there's an acknowledgement that there are dangers that could happen in the world and very real possibility of catastrophe. But as opposed, instead of being negative and yelling at the politicians or protesting, they're doing experiments in how do you how do you live in a way that is more regenerative, more sustainable. So it is that place between utopia and dystopia. I haven't heard that term protopia. That's that's really that's excellent because it articulates that place we need to be in and. It really is a, a reconnecting with being here now, being in the present moment with yourself in your body, um, connected to the earth with whoever you're with and and helping to co-create that future. And so that's kind of what this is all about. Uh, this series of interviews is how do we find those? Where, where is the way into that new future? You know, the transition town movement partly is prefaced by the fact of peak oil and the things that could happen. So how do we relocalize so that we have these resilient communities? But what they find is that people who are reconnecting with their neighbors, the, the social aspects of that reconnection has turned out to be a lot more valuable to people than saving money on their electricity bills or all the other things that are important uh, goals of that movement. And so as those connections happen and as we reconnect with each other and help each other to identify our skills and strengths so that we can employ them in intrinsic motivation at at least a higher percentage of the time in in the work we do, that's the bridge to the future. It's reconnecting with each other, reconnecting with the, the earth. And, you know, what an amazing thing if you had parents and a community around you that was fostering those gifts. They see the gifts in you and from a young age start to foster that, give you opportunities, give you suggestions of things to do or experiments to enact to help find that gift, help you find the gift that they see in you. Absolutely. You know, and I, I really feel that the global permaculture movement is an amazing example of individuals, of communities, of organizations uh, in which we're exploring and experimenting and prototyping with different ways of not only designing our human systems, but relating to the natural world, to each other, in ways that invite the possibility of us co-creating futures that reflect many of the things that we're talking about in this conversation so far. And really, even the proliferation of the permaculture design course around the world is such a wonderful example of people engaging actively in communities of practice that allow us to learn and lead together uh, with an intention to do that in a holistic and uh, systemic way. I think that, you know, when I distill for me at least one aspect of what permaculture means. It's really about doing things that make sense, modeled after nature, that build our relationships and our capacities to co-create the future by designing things on purpose. And what fun is that to be able to engage with people in that kind of exploration? 
It's a, it's a scary and fascinating and exciting time to be alive all at the same time. I was just thinking of another quote from Michael Ben Ali. He said, the concept of design really means the purposeful channeling of energies that would otherwise be diffused. And I think that's excellent because I mean, in, in permaculture, you're channeling those energies as far as how trees and shrubs and earth and water interact. But in social systems, it's, it's interesting because there's so much there is so much that is that is lost out of the bottom of the system in our current societies so redesigning that purposeful channeling of those energies so that they can stay in the system and be used and benefit everyone is is just key for the future well this has been a great conversation i really appreciate you taking the time um would you like to um just give us any final thoughts before we wrap up sure you know i think one of the really exciting things within all of this is that, you know, when we look out into the world and we see people's common hopes and dreams and fears and and the opportunities that are held within all of the different um, aspects of our evolving world, I think there's one of the things that I'm excited about is finding the places where we can actually leverage the context with which, which we're living in and which we're collectively creating and see where the opportunities are. And I think one of the people's work who's been really additionally meaningful to me from other people that we've spoken about is the work of Bela Banathi. And and one of the things that he said that I love is that in an age when the speed, intensity, and complexity of change and transformations increase constantly and exponentially, the ability to shape change rather than become its victims or its spectators, depends on our competence and willingness to guide the purposeful evolution of our systems, our communities, and our society. And I feel like it's this spirit of really learning how to evolve on purpose and learning how to do that in a personal, social, and systemic way, which is fundamentally the core of my work with Evolution Lab. And then looking at those kinds of pieces of the mosaic that is our human endeavors and finding the places where we can look uh, across the landscape and the horizons that we're all a part of and see, for example, with exponential uh, increases in technology and increases in a variety of aspects of, of the human experience shifting and changing exponentially, there's an amazing opportunity to ask questions like, what does it mean to collaborate exponentially? How can we work together at a pace and a scale that allows us to learn and lead and live together in a way that transforms not only the 21st century, but also human society beyond that? And I think we're living in not only exciting times, but times that are asking of us to engage with purposeful evolution in a way that can be not only a whole greater than the sum of its parts, but really be an opportunity for us individually and collectively as a human species to move towards our highest potentials and deepest aspirations. And I just think, you know, it's one of those things where we get to play and work together in not only meaningful, but beautiful ways that do, in fact, leverage systemic root causes in a way that allows us to, to have fun with it, have fun with it and, and explore not only the future of learning and uh, leadership, but also what it means to be human together on this biosphere and, and possibly beyond. 
thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time, Joshua. It's been a great conversation, and I look forward to having many more with you in the future. Thank you, David. I look forward to it, too. Thanks for all your great work, and talk to you soon. And that was Joshua Cubista sitting in with guest host David Bilbrey. You can find out more about Joshua at joshuacubista.com and David at ecothinkit.com. As both Joshua and David mentioned a number of thinkers who influenced their work, you'll find many links in the resource section of the show notes for this episode at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Conversations like this remind me of all the folks who are doing work that is complementary to or in parallel to the work that we're undergoing with permaculture. That under this big umbrella that David Holmgren and Bill Mollison created back in the 1970s that now we kind of all inhabit, whether we're growing vegetables, baking bread, podcasting, or teaching at a university, or really any human endeavor, that we have allies that have already done a lot of work, and that it's worth getting in touch with them and finding out how we can work together so that we don't have to keep recreating the wheel or trying something new every time. Whether that's reaching out to a fellow permaculture practitioner who's engaged in something that we're interested in and sharing information so that we don't hold on to it and hoard it and continue that model of scarcity, but rather live in abundance within our own lives and be able to be open with others. But also like Joshua and David were talking about, you know, with the strategic sustainable development work that's out there, the sustainable labs, Michael Benelli, the Academy for Systemic Change, all of these are organizations that have been working on some of these big picture ideas for a long time that we can get involved with and get engaged. Or even on a smaller scale, when it comes to food policy, there are folks like Growing Power and Will Allen who are doing incredible stuff with urban agriculture. We can look at the slow food, slow money, or slow fashion movements as places where we can learn to use our resources better, or at least to consider how we can spend money intentionally rather than in a frivolous or thoughtless manner. And trust me, because of my love of fashion, I know that it can get expensive to do these things differently. And in the meantime, and during this period of transition, there's still a place for a lot of folks for a retailer like Walmart, because in some cases, maybe that's the only place that they have to shop. But how can we then start the conversation about considering what it is that we're doing when we do spend money there or any other big box store that may come to mind that we have some aversion to for some reason? There's a lot of work ahead of us and the permaculture community moving forward from where we are right now. A lot of conversations that I have continue to be within a scarcity model. And falling into what I've come to know as poverty thinking or a poverty mindset. It's something that I'm as guilty of as anybody. I know what it's like to live moment to moment, not even paycheck to paycheck, and how that can cause us to hold on to what we feel is so little when really we have so much. It's a strange place to be in, trying to create the world that we want to live in and produce models for others to see when we ourselves are still a part of that old system and need to find our own way each day. And I think of the Possibility Handbook as I've been working on that more heavily lately and going through 
some of the things that Ethan Hughes had to share and these peace archetypes that he developed. Even though they're all, in many ways, old, they're just something that have been expanded on and put into one place. And in that, Ethan says that for every one person who is on the edge, that there still needs to be ten people within the system helping to keep those folks on the edge, pushing what it is that we're doing so that we can speak and tell the stories of what the world is that we see that is possible, that we can tell more beautiful stories and in turn show more and more people that there is another way. Regardless of what my future holds, I'm still going to be here in one way or another to help craft that new culture that we're moving towards. So if there's ever any way that I can help you in what you're doing, feel free to give me a call, 717-827-6266. You can also send me text messages there if you're of the type. And actually, I really like the written word, you know, letters and then probably text messages and then emails because at least texts are a bit of a conversation. So anyway, if you'd like to text me, 717-827-6266 for both phone calls and texts, you can email me, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Or probably my favorite thing in the world is still to receive a letter. So you can send something in the post, the Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, I'm not sure what the next episode is going to be. I have, I don't know, 60 or 70 hours worth of material recorded and sitting there that just needs edited and worked through. So I'll grab something and release it here in another six or seven days and uh, catch you again soon. Until then, spend each day living your life as an example to others by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. <laughs>